Hi, Rod. I'm Henning Mundell, and uh, thank you for your presentation. I want to get some more clarification on the pro bono and legal aid and uh, the differentiation. If I were to advise an indigent that is, has trouble with the law or needs to sue someone for something, whether it's criminal or civil case, which direction to go? Where does the pro bono or where is the legal aid uh, come to their disposal? Uh, good question. So uh, fundamentally, the legal aid system is, uh, is a well-developed, well-recognized, uh, well-benchmarked process. Uh, the Legal Aid Society has offices throughout the province. Here in, here in Lethbridge, we have, we have an office. Uh, and if, uh, if someone has a legal problem and you think they might qualify for legal aid, they should be referred to legal aid. Legal Aid will then determine whether the individual qualifies for coverage based on, uh, on the type of matter that's being talked about. Uh, serious criminal charge would be something that would be covered. Uh, minor misdemeanor on a criminal matter may not be covered, depending on circumstances. The, the Legal Aid Society also uh, provides a, a means test, so they have these financial eligibility guidelines uh, for certain matters, and they vary from matter to matter and the type of service that's being provided. But the staff at the Legal Aid Society offices uh, apply the principles that have been developed by their board to determine whether you qualify in terms of the type of problem and your financial means. Pro bono, the provision of legal services pro bono is a lot mushier. Uh, tons of lawyers across the province provide free legal services uh, just because they decide it's the right thing to do. We do it in our office. Uh, other lawyers do it in their offices. Somebody was talking about Dennis Edney. Uh, Mr. Edney was acting for Mr. Catter. He received an award, a national award, for pro bono legal services because he did all of that work for free. Uh, just decided he wanted to do it. Uh, and also, um, he, he funded a, a lot of the out-of-pocket disbursements to go and visit Mr. Cotter, and, and so that's the informal side. On the formal side of pro bono legal services, uh, the, the, legal, the legal guidance clinics, like the one in Lethbridge, also have financial eligibility, eligibility guidelines, and they also have criteria on what kind of matters they can handle. Uh, and that varies from clinic to clinic. So if you have someone, a disadvantaged Albertan, that you think might need legal advice, say an immigration matter, a child custody matter, uh, they don't seem to have any money, you refer to them to the pro bono clinic here in Lethbridge and the staff that are there and paid to do this job will decide if they, if they qualify for legal services, uh, for the type of problem they have, and whether they qualify financially. So that's the, the basic uh, distinction. I should also say that on the pro bono front, Pro Bono Law Alberta is involved in other types of more innovative service delivery models. So, for example, Pro Bono Law will broker contracts between community service organizations. One really uh, cool one is in Edmonton and now, or Calgary and now in Edmonton, uh, Alex Pathways to Housing, uh, where they provide, they have the, the motto, Housing First. But when you see people on the street with drug, alcohol, mental uh, uh, mental problems, and you want to put them into a, into a housing situation, they also have other problems, including legal problems. And so uh, the Pro Bono Law Alberta has 
has brokered contracts between community organizations like Alex and law firms who are, who are saying, look, we'll do those legal services pro bono, that is, for free. And that's another example of how legal services are being delivered for free in the province. Uh, thanks for your presentation. I'm Rena Wass. Um, on the surface, I mean, the legal society and the whole legal system, yes, it's important. We need it. Um, and, you know, just hearing your presentation, it sounded, I took it like, it sounded like a, a great infomercial, like how wonderful the law society is, how wonderful the legal system is. But the reality is the public perception is such that there is a lot of problems in the legal system. There is a lot of hardship that is created by token of the legal system because of how long certain things take. Things that should take a, a very short period of time can sometimes be stretched out for months or years. And as a consequence, family systems are destroyed. Financial systems are... People's life savings are, you know, destroyed. And even legal aid, it is difficult for people to get legal aid. They put you through the mill. Um, so, and now you're saying that when your lawyer is going to give you a discount, yes. You'll get a discount if you qualify. But now, can you explain, does this, who provide, like, are you saying that the lawyer that is part of the legal aid system is going to get however much money coming from the client topped up by the public system? I don't quite get it. Thanks for your question. Um, well, you've, you've raised a point that I mentioned in my questions, um, talking about the engagement of the public. And you heard me say that, that, uh, that remedies for the justice system uh, are not just within the control of the law society. The law society influences the regulation and governance of, of lawyers, which is important, and we take our job seriously. But has the law society got all the answers to all the issues, challenges, and concerns in the justice system? Of course not. And they're all connected. So, for example, when you, you raise questions about, uh, about how long things take, um, th that's a systemic issue that touches a, a huge number of, of uh, areas. One example of how that's being looked at uh, is the recent, uh, the recent enactment of new rules of court that happened on November the 1st. And one of the fundamental aims of that, uh, of that project, which was a decade long to try and renovate the rules, was to address exactly the concern and others that you're raising, namely um, the time it takes. What's the system like? How's it going? Uh, do I think people are done thinking about r renovations to the justice system to make it better? I don't think so at all. I think there's a lot of people out there who understand there are deficiencies. Uh, it's not going to be solved, certainly not by one player or one stakeholder, the law society. It's going to be solved by all of us working together, and that includes legal aid. That's why I say, does the public... Take, uh, does the public have an understanding that it is the rule of law is meant for all of us, but all of us have a stake in it? Access to justice is meant for all of us, and all of us have a stake in it. To be more specific about legal aid, uh, you, you wondered about uh, whether lawyers that provide legal services through legal aid get topped up. No, they don't. Lawyers are hired by legal aid. They're employees of legal aid. They do 
uh, services that are, are described in the legal aid plan for folks that qualify according to some of the criteria I mentioned uh, when Henning spoke. That's one aspect. No one being above the law. However, in reality, I know that if there is a judgment made against me and I refused to obey the judgment, then there are repercussions to me for disobeying a judgment uh, in, in a court of law. However, the government of Canada, in the case of Omar Khadr, lost their case three times. They, they've still flouted the law, but there are no repercussions for them, so I find it hard to believe that no one, including governments, is above the law. Could you comment, please? No one, including governments, is above the law. That's the principle. That's what we stand for. Are we able to achieve results in every case, every time we stand up for people and try and achieve that result? Uh, well, you can answer that for yourselves. I know that Mr. Edney, for example, would have a perspective on that, on the Catter case. Um, that does not, in my mind, diminish... Uh, diminish the, the the fact that the rule of law is fundamental. Uh, is it perfectly applied? Probably not. Is democracy perfect? No. Do we have to stand up for it even though it might not work all the time or anything might not work all the time? I think so. Would I put myself out there to try and guard something that I consider to be at the root of what makes us a civilized society? You bet. So I'm not going to comment on a specific case. I am going to tell you that lawyers stand for the rule of law. That's what we do, and that's what we have to continue doing. Hi, my name is Patrick Rickman. Uh, I'd first like to say that I, I do agree with what you're saying, is that uh, you know, legal aid needs more money in order to operate effectively. Uh, I think that it's important that an uneducated criminal gets the opportunity to defend themselves uh, on the same playing field as the prosecution. Um, if we don't have enough money in legal aid, as my friend pointed out, then we're going to have the more experienced lawyers not willing to, to do legal aid cases because they can charge so much more than what legal aid is willing to pay, which means that a lot of the younger, newer lawyers are the ones taking the cases, so they'd be fighting... Uh, more experienced lawyers. Um, my real question or, or comment is just that uh, it seems that as a country we're heading more and more towards uh, focusing on punishing criminals. And this seems to have a negative effect as, uh, you know, if, as a man goes to jail for five years, he comes back out a worse individual than he was when he went in. So it's not in his best, best interest, and it's not in best interest of the community. Uh, well, in my table seem to be in agreement that um, we need to make step, take steps in the future towards more rehabilitation, less focus on punishment, because we don't want to end up having 10% of our population in prison one day. If you could just comment on that. I think you've been reading the same reports I have. <laughs> Although I can tell you uh, that... Uh, I know of, for example, one senior lawyer who I consider to be 
maybe the best criminal lawyer, criminal law lawyer in the country who does legal aid all the time. So, you know, just be careful about, about applying that too broadly. The other thing, and maybe it's a bit funny, but I've always said that, uh, and I do civil law, I used to do some criminal law, that I would way rather face a tired old 30-year lawyer on the other side than a smart, hungry, uh, five- or maybe ten-year lawyer because I remember what it was like to work at that level. Well, I know it was a few decades ago. Everyone can diminish me. but uh, So, you know, that, that needs to be kept in mind. In terms of, of rehabilitation, punishing criminals, you, you've touched on a theme that was raised. We hosted a public forum on legal aid here in Lethbridge in September, uh, and one of the participants was... Uh, was um, a leader uh, with Native Counseling Services. Uh, and he, he talked exactly about the problem that you're talking about, how when folks uh, go into the criminal system, uh, Indigenous folks is what he was, First Nations is what he was mainly talking about. That's what he said, and I think that resonates with the theme that you're addressing. And that's one reason, I think, why, why uh, the rule of law needs to be applied, because if, if it's not stood up for, the consequences to society can be quite can be quite devastating. The other thing that you should know is that th this idea needs to be continually talked about. Uh, I'm not involved in it, but I'm aware of a program that's being conducted uh, by Alberta Justice right now. I think it's called the Integrated Justice System, and it takes off on the Alex Pathways to Housing model for putting housing first. And, and, and in fact, uh, they've got working in that for Alberta Justice on a contract basis, the medical doctor who was actually developing the Alex Pathways to Housing project, Dr. Pam Thompson, is doing that work with Alberta Justice. Hi, Rod. Uh, Ian McKenna. Um, I, I wanted to get back to the question of the, of the law society. You say how important the rule of law is. We've already heard and, and probably read that the government itself uh, threw that aside on the Omar Khadr thing. And uh, so I'm wondering, um, does your society have anything to say in the public domain, you know, that the government shouldn't be doing that? And if not, why not? If it's so important, this rule of law, um, is, is your society uh, doing what it should be doing, obviously in its own way, but also looking at other people uh, and, and groups and so on that are not applying the rule of law? And I just wonder if you have any comments on that. Why, why aren't you out there saying, hey, the government is uh, you, you know, acting in accordance with the rule of law? So... Perhaps the, the short answer is, uh, is, is to fold it out or, or blow it out to the wider perspective. Uh, as regulator and governor of the legal profession, we stand up for rule of law, solicitor-client privilege, independence of the judiciary, independence of lawyers. Uh, and that may not necessarily manifest itself in one particular case, but it can. Uh, more often, the law society as a regulator becomes involved either provincially or through the Federation of Law Societies at the national level. And do we, do we take action with respect to uh, governments that purport to offend those principles? Yes. We get involved uh, in legislation uh, like the anti-terrorism and money, money, money laundering initiative was, was attempting to make lawyers essentially agents of the state and compromising solicitor-client privilege. 
Right across the country, we got involved in resisting that, resisting that legislation. We litigated that. In fact, the litigation is still extant. But we were dealing with how do we address those social problems. Every lawyer is, is against money laundering. Every lawyer is against terrorism. But when we act on these matters, we approach it from the profession, uh, perspective of how do you respond to those social problems, how do you deal with them, and still respect the principles. So we do get involved. Uh, we may not get involved every time uh, an individual matter comes around, but we're always involved in issues around uh, those fundamental principles. Right now on the legal aid debate, uh, we're involved. We've just renegotiated uh, or are in the process of renegotiating the governance agreement, which is the uh, tripartite agreement I spoke about. And for us in that debate, the key issue has been to ensure that whatever method or service delivery method is, is invented or, or pr proposed by the Legal Aid Society, uh, it's going to respect the independence of lawyers, which advances the rule of law, and the independence of the Legal Aid Society itself, which is why I, I mentioned that during my remarks. We do get involved more often at the, at the general level, Ian, but sometimes on specific cases that can also come up. Mary Shillington here. Um, thank you, Rod, for your, your uh, information today. Uh, I did a little survey at our table of eight people, and only one uh, person at our table had heard previously about the Leftbridge Pro Bono uh, Clinic, legal clinic. Uh, so that gets to a practical uh, issue for me as a former, as a retired clinical social worker. Uh, if I had known that information... I might have referred some people to that system. How is that information uh, given out to people, and how do the public? I'd be interested to know how how many people here it was new to hear about the Lethbridge Pro Bono Clinic. Uh, uh, so, how is that information given out into the public so that people know about it? Well. Um so I can't answer that specifically because I'm not involved in the administration at the pro bono clinic here in Lethbridge. I have done, I have volunteered. It's, uh, the services are provided at that clinic by volunteer lawyers. Uh, and the, the lawyers provide free legal advice uh, to folks that qualify. The clinic also has a staff lawyer now. And that lawyer can provide free legal representation uh, to, to clients, including representation in the courts on matters that fall within that particular clinic's mandate. Uh, and again, I repeat, it, it, the role of pro bono is to complement, not to replace a properly funded legal aid system. And so we could talk about the policy around that. So I can't say exactly how the Lethbridge Legal Guidance Clinic is publicizing itself. I know that it's out there. Um, I can tell you that one of the main referral uh, routes to the clinic would be from the legal profession, lawyers. Folks come in to see lawyers. The lawyer would say, look, um, this is a matter that would actually be handled at the clinic and set up an opportunity for them to do that. Lawyers in Lethbridge also need to be recognized and commended because we have just received in Lethbridge um, a national award because in Lethbridge we have... Uh, the highest rate of participation of lawyers in, in that pro bono initiative 
as any uh, clinic, any place in the province and maybe the country. So this is a, this is a place where, where lawyers are stepping up to the pan and, and doing the job. Uh, if you want to visit the clinic, it's open weekdays. It's over on 5th Street, right beside 5th on 5th, and they would welcome to see you there, Mary, and anybody else that wants to go down. Hi, my name is Mike McDonald. Thank you very much for the address. I have a twofold question uh, referring to both of your parts, which, which you led off with. Number one is about the independence of the practice of law. I agree totally with the idea that we keep it away from government regulatory bodies because they botched up most of the things that they do administer. One of the uh, sorry, thanks. One of the one of the questions I have though is how do you or what checks and balances do you see in a, in having the law society stop itself from being another independent regulatory body that is not accessible to the public. If you want independent legal thought, has it not been the case in the past that the Law Society has actually punished certain independent legal thinkers because they think against vested public interest? Sorry, the vested interests that exist. Second question is that you uh, talked about... Um, uh, maintaining public access to justice, the whole system. I suggest to you that one of the problems that the public faces, and it'll be many people here that will be affected, is that the numbers that are involved are very, very prohibitive for litigation. If I have, I realize my small claims now is up to $25,000. If I have a $50,000 claim, the realistic truth is it probably isn't worth me litigating because by the time I, unless I can require solicitor, or sorry, unless I can win solicitor client fees, by the time I net out, I'm better off to go and try and mediate or arbitrate and, and just work that out. And with small claims, if in fact you have the $25,000 system in the small claims, why not work towards eliminating a bunch of the judicial and, and legal trappings that surround it and make it accessible two members of the lay public so that they can go and proceed with their claims. What I fear is that if we don't do those, or if those kind of things aren't followed, uh, we will not have the rule of law, which you have indicated, because people will start to take matters into their own hands. It becomes too prohibitive. Good questions. Um, so, independence of lawyers, checks and balances. Um, You've identified some, some very, very important points. Uh, one of the ways that the Law Society works to ensure that there are checks and balances is to, uh, is to include in our processes the lay benchers, the, the publicly appointed representatives. We currently have four, I mentioned that, of the 24 benchers. We include those lay benchers in every aspect of our regulatory and governance role. Uh, we do everything we can to, to make sure a lay bencher is included in each of the hearing panels on discipline matters. Those are generally heard by panels of three, ben three benchers, one of which we, we try to get a lay bencher involved. That's a form of check and balance. The other form of check and balance that, that is worth considering is, is the test that we apply with respect to what conduct of a lawyer should be sanctioned. I mentioned that in, in my remarks, and it's spelled out in Section 49 of the Legal Profession Act, and it says that we sanction a lawyer uh, if their conduct uh, 
is contrary to the best interest of the public, including the interest of lawyers. Uh, and secondly, if their conduct tends to harm the reputation of the legal profession generally. The, the second test is there purely because, they're both there because of the rule of law, but the second one is most closely linked to the rule of law. And that goes back to my remarks as well. If the legal profession is not respected, if it has not got a reputation that the public supports, then it will not be independently regulated for very long. And so we are concerned that we will sanction conduct of lawyers if, it neg if that conduct negatively affects the reputation of the legal profession generally. Because without public support, there is no independent regulation. Uh, and so that, uh, that's the broad answer to what you're talking about. Uh, there, are, there certainly is thinking going on right now about the whole question of, uh, the whole question of, of other oversight mechanisms. For example, at the Federation of Law Societies, there's a, there's a debate going on right now at the national level on whether there should be oversight of legal service uh, regulators. Uh, and uh, in British Columbia, for example, there already is. Uh, they have uh, oversight through an ombudsperson's office. On the public access to justice, I'll just make two brief, maybe three brief comments. One is that the need to be flexible is critical. Uh, at, from our perspective, at our, at our regulatory perspective, we're taking a look at our entire uh, discipline process. Uh, and we're taking a look at how we can be more innovative, more creative, more effective, more fair. Uh, will that include off-ramps so that there can be mediation, so that there can be other ways of resolving matters and only put the matters that truly need an adjudication to hearing panels? That's going on. That's going on in our little world. It's also going on in the broader world of, of civil justice, which is what you're more interested in. Uh, and that the thinking isn't over yet, but for example, in the new rules of court, it recognizes that in the case of Queen's Bench matters, you can't get a Queen's Bench trial anymore unless you can say you've been to mediation or alternate dispute resolution. That will enhance and develop that whole area, uh, and that's going to be in the, in the interest of the public, we think. Uh, that it also recognizes another way of providing legal services in a way that might be more cost-effective, which is called unbundled legal services. That's when you might have a matter, a $50,000 matter, and you say, well, you know, I can probably do most of this, but what I really need is I need some help on how to examine a client, how to examine the other side uh, on interrogatories, pretrial interrogatories or questioning, or how do I actually prepare for a trial? And so this unbundled or discrete task representation initiative is unfolded, which is now allowing folks to do that uh, and to use lawyers in a more directed and concerted way, and hopefully that will increase access on those matters that you're talking about. Mr. Bura, uh, you will be our final question. If you could perhaps keep your Bal question Bura to about a minute. is my name, and I'll be very quick. Uh, you know, there's a public perception about the whole legal system. Um, that if you are powerful and wealthy, you can buy justice. Let me give you a couple examples. The first example is the Polish immigrant lands in Vancouver Airport. He's taser, 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 then there are lies and everything about it. And the other case in Ontario, there was an MP. He was charged with something, and later on it was nothing. 
And the second case uh, is the uh, media czar who was charged and every, uh, media tapes were there to prove that, yes, he did it, and he's already out. So I just want you to expand on that. Thank you. Well, you've identified uh, at least, um, well, I would lift that up to the general level and say the concerns that you're articulating reinforce to me exactly why we need to have an independent legal profession and we need to have a rule of law because we need to be constantly vigilant. Um, it's not like you invent a democratic system and say, well, we've got the rule of law, let's move on. It's something you have to guard every single day. Uh, and it's encroached on in small ways, and it's encroached on in big ways. And we've heard some international news on big ways that it can be encroached on. Uh, the critical thing is we need to all be vigilant. The public needs to be engaged. The public needs to know that the rule of law is fragile. It's as fragile as we as society want to make it. Um, one last thing, if I can just close with a comment I would have made during my speech if, if my partner wouldn't have cut me off. Uh, we talk, you talked about the public perception of the justice system. Um, I want to just close with a positive point, which is we conducted a survey as part of our alternate delivery of legal services of the public. And one of the things that the public has said is, actually, those folks that use lawyers, a huge predominance of them, over 78% say they were satisfied with their lawyer, and they feel they got good value for the service that they paid for. So public perception, if you do the, the homework, isn't always what we expected it to be, although I recognize the point that you're making. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Jerky.